Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Aside from food and drink, the most defining characteristic of a restaurant is the atmosphere. Whether you're in a neighborhood bistro or a Michelin-starred restaurant or even a bar or bottle shop, the space is always going to be defined by its mood. And there's no better way to set the mood than with some music. Today's guest is Charlie Reyes, and he founded Audio Culture LLC, a music curation company for the hospitality industry. Born and raised in Harlem, Charlie is best known for creating the playlist for New York restaurants Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, and Legacy Records. And more than almost anyone, he's responsible for the incorporation of hip-hop in fine dining restaurants. We both listen to a lot of hip-hop, and I wanted to hear how he balances his appreciation for the music with respect for the culture. So we're going to just jump right into the conversation. Here's Charlie. Yo. Yo, what's going on, man? What's going on, Charlie? How are you? I'm good, man. How are you? Good morning. I'm good. I'm good. Man, you are hydrating. I love it. Is it hot up there in New York right now? Um, <clears throat> Yeah, we're currently going through a heat storm, but um, one of my uh, quarantine better my life choices has been to, you know, practically try and drink that uh, gallon of water. Uh, That's a half gallon jug, so it's two of those a day. No messing around. Well, if you're dealing with a heat storm right now, I mean, a week and a half ago, you were dealing with a hurricane. So storms on storms on storms. Supposedly, there's another one coming next week. It's, uh, it's a good time to be alive. <laughs> Keep you on your toes, I guess. Yeah. Well, um, I got I to gotta start by asking what you've been listening to this week. Um, I've been listening to basically just the new Logic album. Um, I, I can't, I, I, it didn't come out this week. I think it's been out like a, right. a couple of weeks now. But, um, you know, I... This is retirement album, right? Uh, yes, but I have a actual... Allegedly. I have a theory about that. Um, but yes, I think that, uh, and that's, that's all I've been listening to. It's, it's his reunion with No ID. Um, mm-hmm. It's amazing. It's really, really good. Uh it speaks a lot about what it ironically it speaks a lot about what's going on in the world. I don't know if you planned it that way. Um, but it also he's he's uh it's uh he's got a lot of I don't really know how to say it cuz I've been a fan of his since the beginning. Um a lot of the gripes or a lot of the opinions people have about him, he actually addresses them kind of on the way out. And and I and I think he did it well. You know, uh I I believe that people who say that he's not good or not relevant don't don't really understand what you know hip hop culture is, and I'm not trying to offend anyone. Yo, that's what this podcast is for. It's here for the hot it's, takes. It's here to like let people air that shit out. So you let them know. Put people on watch. Well, his biggest the his biggest critique of, about Logic is that he's not gangsta enough or he's not hip hop enough, and I don't understand what that means because every, there are subgenres all across the spectrum of hip hop, and Logic has a niche of his own, and you know he's one of those rappers that. Because he talks about like you know growing up the way he did, or you know, uh, you know he I believe he won the Grammy for the Suicide Song. Like the minute that an MC starts to talk consciously or have some sort of substance that it has to do with you know nonviolent criminal activities, you know he gets put in this hole, and all of a sudden like the street cred is less. And I don't I don't get that. I've never understood that. Like I think I think there's an earnestness to logic, you know. It's the same earnestness that you hear sometimes in, I think Wale is a good kind of like parallel there. And maybe some people take that earnestness as something other than what it is, which is something fun. Uh, one of the things that I think is really cool about him as an artist is uh, he actually, he, he, um, 
he he has three personalities. I don't I don't know if three is enough to classify as like schizophrenia, but he has he has three musical personalities that he identifies as. Um, so he's James McAvoy in uh the movie Split. He's got all those yeah, different personalities yeah, going he's, on. He's, so so um, when he first came out, he was Young Sinatra. So like the mixtape, boom bappy, uh, kind of like borderline punchliney. Um, version of him is young sinatra and then he there's the studio version of him which is logic and then bobby tarantino which was the two albums that you listen to those uh he considers the bobby tarantino um personality to be kind of like the the trappy kind of uh you know in your face more confrontational like the most uh the most animated version of him for you know for Mm -hmm. i think it's a good description of bobby tarantino um, so when he's uh, when he says that Logic retired, I think that he's retiring the studio version of himself. Uh, and I, I don't I wouldn't be surprised if a year or two down the line he releases an album like, you know, Young Sinatra five or Bobby Tarantino yeah. three, you know, kind of wrapping up the whole Logic discussion. Um, and I think that on his first and on his last studio albums as Logic, he really did that well. Um, and I think as a fan, it's because he allowed himself to be all of the things that he is. Uh, whereas in like, like incredible true story, as much of a great album as it is, I think that that's a logic album. Like that's, that's mostly logic. That's not, there's not a lot of boom, bappy Sinatra or trappy Tarantino. They have all his albums are for everybody, but I think that when he spits in his, in his most successful, uh, it's when he's kind of like putting his roots out first. If that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, for sure. So, for people that don't know you or your company or your backstory a little bit, you are the person that curates the music selections for delicious hospitality, right? So the music programs for Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, Legacy Records, that music that is so unique to those establishments that like that is your doing, that is your curation. And since then, you've jumped off to start your own music company where you consult with restaurants, bars, other venues about selecting their music. And in addition to that, you DJ, you started out as a bartender. I feel like that's a pretty sick story. I mean, you were able to turn your love for music into a full-on business, which is rad. Uh, yeah, man, it was really, I consider myself really lucky. It was just a, all a matter of, I guess, um, I, I think it's luck. Uh, I also, at the same time, though, I'm a believer that everything happens for a reason. I started at Charlie Bird because I answered an ad on Craigslist. I was sick and tired of where I was working at the time. I was working at this Austrian tasting restaurant in the theater district. Uh, hmm. and on top of all of the, uh, you know, uh, are we allowed to curse on this podcast or? Fuck yeah, dude. All right, cool. So, <laughs> uh, so on top of all of the bullshit that I was dealing with on the floor um, from the owner manager at the time, uh, his musical selections is so is so crazy, dude. He was an Austrian tasting restaurant and he played Brazilian jazz on Pandora on repeat. So, of all of the streaming systems that you could use in your space. Pandora's the worst. It's the shortest algorithm. So you pick a station, you pay for the ad-free shit, whatever, and then it literally will play the same 25 songs, 30 tops, every three hours. You know what I mean? Like so you're hearing the same song over, twice a Over shit. and over and over again. And yeah. and it never deviates. So like that's and that's that's the algorithm's job. It's not doing it. It's not, not doing its job. 
but it was mm -hmm. torture. So I'd had enough from one day to the next. I was just putting my resume out there and I got the call. Shout out to Shin Slover. She was the opening general manager there. So she hired me and I started working there. And one of the cool things that I like really wanted uh, that really had me wanting to work there was that when we were talking about opening the restaurant, she was telling me how there were going to be all of these like cool little hip hop uh, details like that were paying homage to the culture in the restaurant because uh, the two opening uh, owners, Robert Bohr and uh, Chef Ryan Hardy, um, were big hip hop fans. And before I even met them, I thought that was cool. And then um, in the press release that uh, Chef Ryan and Robert put out, uh, they wrote a letter, um, an open letter to New York City. And they got a lot of heat for it, but I thought that it came from the heart. And they were talking about how they wanted Charlie Bird to be a representation of what they loved and appreciated about New York culture. And for New Yorkers specifically, but I think that for people who love hip hop around the world, like New York is the center of it all. And I'm not saying that spoken like a true New Yorker. I'm not listen, I'm not like I'm not saying that, you know, trying to throw shade to anyone, but historically speaking, uh it started in the projects of the Bronx in the seventies. If you ever really want uh historical like video uh, documentation of that, there's a really awesome documentary called Rumble Kings. And it's all about the gang culture in the Bronx, which is where I'm from, and the people's resistance and rise from that is what gave birth to the, the parties in the street, which is what gave birth to hip hop. But I digress. So I thought it was really cool, man, because I grew up. I'm a like I'm a, I'm a music nerd, but I'm a hip hop like I'm a I'm a hip hop fan. Like I love everything about it. And growing, I was born in 1979. So growing up in the age that I did and in the city that I did and in the neighborhood that I did, hip hop was, it was, it was a partner. It was a best friend. Like uh, I can map out my entire life and, and give you a song that was relevant to me. At, you know what I mean? Again, mm -hmm. but I'm losing track. So Charlie Bird was, was going to, was uh, paying homage to all these things. And I thought it was cool. So I started working there and they were playing hip. And you started as a bartender, right? No, no. I started as a waiter. I started as a waiter. Okay. And they uh, they were playing hip hop, and I thought it was cool. And one of the ways that I got to know Robert at first, because Robert was always on the floor when we first opened, um, was when he when I would hear a song over the over the speakers, it would inspire me to talk to him about the song, the producer, the rapper, the B side to that tape, whatever album it was on. Uh, I would ask him if he heard this remix or that remix. Like I get really animated talking about music, um, and so. Uh, as cool as it was, like any other restaurant in the world, you know, music, when it's played at after a certain decibel level, it becomes part of the room. And it was getting to the point, I think it was like six months in, where we were all kind of, as much as we loved it, we were all kind of getting tired of listening to the same, you know, two playlists that we had. And at the time, what were you using? If this other place that you had been working at was on Pandora, what was going on at Charlie Bird at the time? So Charlie Bird was really cool in the way that they approached their music program because um, way before I took it over, they knew that they wanted music to be a part of what they were going to do. Um, and so uh, to my knowledge, they were one of the first spaces that I had heard of that actually invested. They they padded the ceilings for sound. They made it. They made they made the space basically studio-esque to where the decibel levels, the treble, the bass, everything was going to um, sound the way it was supposed to. Like music was going to sound the way it was supposed to when they played it loud, you know? Uh, we, mm -hmm. we would end up paying for that in the long run when we noticed how too much bass would shake the Zaltos. Hell yeah. Uh, but 
that's that was their approach, you know, and they so they thought about the music. They thought about how they were going to play the music everywhere. So they again, they were one of the first spaces that I knew of that incorporated using Sono speakers. So an entire Wi-Fi speaker system throughout the whole restaurant um, so that we could play everything centered for one place. And when we first started, we were running off an iPad. So we were running off of, you know, playlists that Robert and Chef had made like on their iPhones or their iPads or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so one day, uh, you know, we're just, we're starting for service and Robert pulls me aside and he asked me if I had any interest in putting a playlist together to put in the dining room. You know, so anything, a- anything that I've done with music, uh, I can't not acknowledge the fact that it was Robert Bohr and, and Chef mm-hmm. Ryan's like vision to give me the opportunity to do this. You know, I think. And when I asked him about it, he said, you know, you're a music nerd. He's like, I knew that you love music. I knew that you love the culture. He's like, and, I, and you know, I, and if it sucked, I, w- I could have just said no. So what was the harm mm-hmm. in, uh, yeah. you know, giving you a shot? So he says, listen, he's like, go home. Uh, you, you, uh, you have an iTouch, an iPad. Yeah. So he says, go home, put a bunch of music together, bring it in the, uh, tomorrow. If if it works, we'll, we'll figure something out. You know, so I brought it in. And looking back now and thinking about the way that we approach music now, it was horrible. Uh, it was uh, it was it was good music. Like I definitely picked great tracks, you mm-hmm. know. But the uh, the the way that I lined them up, um, you know, I'm not a I'm not um, ashamed to say that I, before I knew what I was doing, I was one of those people that I put a bunch of music together and I hit shuffle, and mm-hmm. we very quickly learned that that is not how you approach putting any type of music, not just hip hop, but any style of music into a dining room. Why is that? Uh, well, we can get into that as when I wrap up this version. Um, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, so basically just what happened was it came, I came back and it was great. And it snowballed into I started doing music for Charlie Bird. Then when every other space opened, they asked me to do every other space and it kind of just bubbled from there. So like when you initially kind of came up with what you wanted for the space, because each of those restaurants is very different from one another, right? Yeah. Um, for people that haven't eaten at those three restaurants, how would you kind of describe the cuisine that Chef was putting together and kind of the type of restaurant that Robert wanted to create with each of those spaces? Um, I mean, in terms of cuisine, I know for a fact Chef Ryan is rooted in um, Italian cuisine, but, you know, uh, very rustic and rooted in like fresh vegetables, fresh seafood fresh made pastas, like everything light and flavorful. Seven years later, I think that Charlie Bird, when people who have eaten here look, think about their cuisine, they, they mention three things. They mention their farro salad. Chef, you can find a video of Chef making that farro salad uh, like on Good Morning America. It's, it's legendary. Our chicken, a lot of dining rooms and a lot, and a lot of uh, guests take, take chicken for granted. You know, they think, they look at the menu and they think they think of it as an afterthought, like, because most people cook chicken at home, you know you don't you don't mm-hmm. go out looking to eat a plate of chicken. Uh, but chef, fuck man, chef chef chicken was amazing. Yeah. Uh, and one of the cool things that I loved on it was the chicken liver mousse, the ducks, uh, the the canal that he would put on the plate, which has also become like Charlie Bird lore. And then lastly was our um, our budino. I almost called it a lava cake, for which I probably would have gotten mm-hmm. a lot of heat for. Um, but you know, it's basically it, it's a proper version of a quote unquote lava cake. So rich and dense and like hot melted uh chocolate on the inside but we had olive oil gelato that we would serve with ours initially and little uh mold on sea salt a uh, little fresh mm-hmm. pressed olive oil on top of that um and then chef would 
caramelized and crisp up Rice Krispies on the side. You got all of those elements on the on the spoon. It was a it was a bomb in your mouth. You had salt, sweet. You had hot. You had cold, crunchy. Oh man, it was amazing. So uh, chef has always had uh, fresh uh, rustic Italian as the base for his spaces. Um, and then when he opened Pasquale Jones, so Pasquale Jones is amazing. Uh, Pasquale Jones, what he did was he imported uh, two clay ovens. Um, I believe we were from Napoli. Uh, so the, the the ovens he brought in from Italy, and they do uh, brick oven pizza. And their pizza is phenomenal. Um, they, they're legendary at this point for their clam pizza. Uh, their margarita pizza. Uh, they've got dude some- that clam pizza fucking slaps. Yeah, yeah. And shout out to Chef Tim Kaspari. Uh, recently left the group, but was uh the opening executive chef there, and was the the man behind the wheel there for the entire time up until recently. And phenomenal guy to work with. Uh, phenomenal chef. Uh, but that's those those two spaces. And then at Legacy again, it was Italian influence, but. Uh, with a little bit more of a little Mediterranean twist as well. Shout to Chef Henry Zamora, who's the executive chef there. He came over from uh, from the West Coast, uh, and he brought a lot of like fresh seafood and uh, um, like uh, the Crudo program at Legacy is amazing. Um, so, yeah. yeah, so great menus at all three spaces. Um, and you know what what was really cool is that you know they're all very unique in their culinary identity, but they're all rooted in Chef Ryan's like Italian. Mm-hmm. preference of cooking and with music it kind of ended up that way also so uh charlie bird is all hip-hop all the time predominantly 90s hip-hop early 2000 uh pasquale jones when they opened it they wanted it to be a little bit more of smooth but funky so we tried uh so we leaned a lot towards old old funk and soul r&b and motown there's a lot of james brown that was played there at uh, uh, at first and still uh, but one of the things that we had to learn both as a restaurant group and then that I had to learn as a as a music consultant uh, was the importance of BPMs in the dining rooms and how that like drives the energy in it. And a lot of people don't ever really think about that. Yeah. So like I think that's really interesting to think about because like a restaurant isn't constant. You know, you walk into a restaurant at 430 or five o'clock, like right when it opens and the feeling in that space is very different than at seven o'clock, you know as you're getting a turn of the table versus 10:45 end of the night people are finishing their desserts checks been dropped you know and it's a totally different vibe in the space at each of those times i'm sure you knew that working in the theater district too that you got to stick to those table turns right oh man yeah you know yeah that was a nightmare of a, a part of my career but yeah man you're absolutely right um you know and um this is like a free consultation for uh any business that's gonna, any restaurant that's going to listen to this podcast but when you're building your music program, you know, you you're failing yourself and your space the second that all, that you put a bunch of music on a playlist and hit shuffle, or you know, you search out a radio station on Tidal or Spotify and hit play. Um, and the reason that you do that, I'm saying that, and I'm not trying to discredit the the streaming services or even your love or attention to the culture or your love or attention to your space, but it's it's lazy because you're not thinking about the night as a whole. So every other facet of, of, of a dining room experience, um, whether it be front of the house or back of the house, the most successful spaces, all of them have thought about every single detail in those four, within those four walls over and over and over and over again, 
until they thought they had it figured out. And then they threw that idea out and started all over again. And, and from the, from the, from the glassware, from the Zaltos to the plates that you use, to the napkins, to how starchy those napkins are, to whether or not you're going to have linen, to how heavy are the table bases. You know, like when you walk through the space, like is, is the exit sign lit? Do you have an exit sign? What kind of soap do you use in the di- in the bathrooms? Are you offering mints? Where are the toothpicks? What type of paper are you using for your menus? These are like, and these are things that in, in any hospi- hospitality circle, I'm not crazy when I say these things because uh, the best restaurateurs, the best business owners are thinking about all these things, right? So mm-hmm. why is it that you can put all of that, tr- uh, all of that thought and effort into every other, every one of those other details? But when it comes to music, things, something that people are listening to, something that is present in your diner's experience, why haven't you put that same amount of thought or effort into that part of it? And I don't think that Charlie Bird was the first, definitely not, but they were the first owners to realize that they were too busy to do it themselves. And when they saw that someone within their circle, within their, you know, within their team, uh, had the ambition and the desire to, to try something to do it, they gave me the opportunity to do it, you know? Yeah. And you were saying how there was a lot of trial and error in those first couple of uh, stages of the playlist. Um, aside from like the shuffle thing and trying to match up BPMs, like were there any any like big lessons you learned those first couple of playlists that you made? Oh, for sure, man, for sure. So one of the things that I think that we learned the hard way is that you have to walk a line between respect for the culture and the respect for your business. So I I played all of the stuff that I knew was quality hip hop, right? So as an example, I'll bring up a, a very classic album that anyone who's heard it loves. You know, like like Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style, classic great album, classic album that is the, that is not that is undisputable. And at any house party, shit in the club at a barbecue, anywhere else where it's just you and your people, like you can hit play from the inception of that album when he's sitting in that bathtub to the end of the album where he's talking about bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks. But you can't play bitches ain't shit but hoes and tricks in a dining room. You can't do it. Um, and, yeah. and the reason why is because even the most even the most open-minded, open-minded um, fan or diner will will be accepting but you know that's going to be a comment at the table like damn yo they really played let this go right now and yeah. and so the thing is is like you know there's plenty of, and, and all hip-hop has cursing all hip-hop can have uh controversial material but there are ways to play it without being overtly offensive you know and so mm-hmm. you know that was a lesson that we learned in the long run that there are things that some that you have to try and avoid because sometimes it's going to be too offensive. Uh, and the mm-hmm. cool thing about hip hop is that you know you don't you don't have to play the shiznit, but you can turn around and play beautiful. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or 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 you know anything else by Snoop. You know what I mean? Drop it like you can turn around and play drop it like it's hot. Yeah. You know, uh, and it's a great song, and there are curses in it. You know, but it's not as in your face as any intro on doggy style, you know? <laughs> so that's that's what we learned in the process. And, you know, I took that a step further when I started to think about 
the way we would set up our playlists in the dining rooms in terms of like in the daytime in general, it's a lot more chill, you know, and even at Charlie Bird, when I would work brunches, I noticed that even even though it was there were cool people, there were still people on business meetings or, you know, that's when we would get a little bit more of like the parents out for the day with their kids in the stroller, especially once we opened the mm-hmm. patio. So progressively, what I started to do was I started to separate hip hop, not in terms of BPMs, because the BPMs for me have to always match the, the day, the time of day. So at the end of that lunch shift, you're still you're still going to need busy, busy music, you know. Mm-hmm. But what, the way I started to deviate it was I would do like for me it was lunch was always been more backpack, more boom bap, whereas mm-hmm. dinner was a little bit more like street or like in your face, you know. So so maybe you've got like tribe on the playlist at lunch, and then when it comes to dinner time, you're getting into something a little more like like Jay, like Jay, yeah. Nas. But the, yeah, exactly. Um, and in in general, yes. But with all, I mean, obviously, the cool thing about hip hop too is like, I mean, you can play, you can turn around and play Nas's one mic at lunch, and then mm-hmm. save Nas's like for dinner, you know. Mm-hmm. Or you can play like uh, Izzo by Jay for lunch, and then mm-hmm. you know play you know can't knock the hustle for dinner, or, or yeah. you know what I'm saying. And so, and a lot of hip hop is like that. Same thing with Tribe, like. I would say that I would play anything off the tribe's last album on dinner just because it's so mm-hmm. fucking in your face. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, th- you know what I mean? But anything that's old school tribe, I would definitely play it more for lunch. Or what we would do also is we would carry that energy into the first hour and a half of dinner service. So dinner service would always kind of start in that style also and then gradually mm-hmm. ramp up to that like energy that we would have for for probably from seven to 11 or, or whenever we would close up. So like that, that playlist at Charlie bird is very set in like that nineties era of hip hop. And then you were talking about how at Pasquale Jones, it's maybe a little more like funk Motown. Um, what about at legacy? I mean, what's kind of the vibe there? Cause even when you were describing the menu, it seemed like it was a little more eclectic. Um, so at Pasquale, what's great about doing something awesome and unique is that once you do it doesn't matter what you do after that your biggest fans are always going to expect you to do something like what you did the first time and Mm -hmm. as great as it was to be known for 90s hip-hop at charlie bird um now it's something that everyone expects uh unfortunately at Mm -hmm. at all delicious hospitality spaces um so and i'm I'm saying that because uh when we started the music concept of pasquale jones um, if you've ever been there, you'll see that there's a huge mural of James Brown right before you walk into the restaurant. So there, they, the train of thought was always to have that style of music there, right? Uh, the mm-hmm. BPMs for uh, a lot of the for some of the of that genre really only line up for brunch. So on top of the fact that some, we had a little bit of a shortage for constant rotation of fresh music uh, mm-hmm. of that style. We also were getting back a lot of, you know, guests who were Charlie Bird regulars that were now going to Pasquale being like, yo, man, the music is good. But like, why aren't you playing into that Charlie Bird music at Pasquale? And it's like, you know, like imagine you're a chef. You know what I mean? You you put this bomb plate out at your one spot. You're opening up another spot. And now your other spot is great. But your regulars are like, yo, your new space is great. But why don't you bring that dish from your one spot to your new spot? It's like, what the fuck? You know, why <laughs> Why does yeah. everything have to be rooted in 90s hip-hop, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I am I resisted. I didn't want to do it. Um, 
and you know Robert and Chef and and Grant at that time because at that time Grant had come on as a partner also. They were like, listen, like you got to play, you got to give them what they want. You got to figure out a way to to play that hip hop and and you know not make it sound the same because that's always been one of my pet peeves. Uh, I I won't mention who, but one of the first one of the first things I read when I came to New York, um, there was an interview in New York Magazine of a restaurateur who has a lot of spaces here in the city. And he at that time was getting credit for his the music that he was playing. And he was and when they asked him about his stuff, he was saying how he had a he loved the fact that he could walk into any of his spaces at like 830 at night and the same song was playing over and all of them. And, and it didn't deviate because he said that he loved that control and he knew that he could control the space. Well, as someone who works in a restaurant six days a week, I was like, fuck that. There's no mm-hmm. way I want to work in a space where I'm going to hear the because I was I had just come from going through that with the Brazilian jazz and, yeah. and the Austrian spot, right? So yeah. when we're talking about how we're going to figure out how we're going to do this, it was probably Jones. So this is what I came up with. Uh, I told I told them that I was going to start the night with uh, R and B, soul, funk, a little bit on a smoother, chiller tip because Pasquale Jones is also a much smaller space than Charlie Bird. Mm-hmm. And then what we what I was going to do was I was going to ramp up the BPMs. And when we got into the second half of the night, I was going to play hip hop. And but what I was going to do was I was going to start to play 90s R&B remixes with hip hop. Right. So, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, we started to play the Mary J remixes with Biggie and the SWV mm-hmm. remixes with Wu-Tang, you know, the the 3LW remixes with Nas, the 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 Ja Rules with the J-Lo's. Uh, the Missy Elliott. So, you know, it was like, it was still hip hop, you know, but it basically was a, uh, you know, uh, a journey, if you will, from the R&B and soul that all of this music was getting sampled from and then brought into it, but in that same Pasquale Jones culture. So when we got to Legacy, I pitched to them that I wanted to play hip hop um, that was more recent. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, uh, at Charlie Bird at that point we were playing by that time we were playing all 90s hip hop and we were going as far as like late 2000s so you know I was playing like like Drake was getting played at Charlie Bird but it was only like Thank Me Later you know it was yeah, no, yeah. it was only that album like I, w- I would mm-hmm. purposely cut it off there because pre-take I, care yeah pre-take care because I wanted to keep a lot of that newer music for uh, Legacy and so when we opened Legacy, the bulk of my playlist were centered around newer artists. You know, I was using uh, Amine and Cole and Kendrick, Logic, you know, Drake, um, uh, Action, Badass, you know, like a, a, like a, a, a collection of these newer artists that are putting out quality music. Well, the great know? thing about playing Action is he's rapping so much about food. I mean, yeah. you're good to go. The lyrics yeah. match the food perfectly. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, you know, Abby the Nomad, uh, you know, like really like a lot of stuff out there that a lot of people like that, that would never get played at Charlie Bird because it was too new or it's not in that realm of style of hip hop. Um, and it wasn't well received. Mm-hmm. Um, and Legacy was a really unique experience because it was um, it was our first time outside of the lower half of New York City. Um, so for those who aren't familiar, um, Legacy Records is in Hudson Yards. Uh, Hudson Yards is 
the new name, if you will, for the upper half of, of Hell's Kitchen or, or like the middle of New York. Um, it's where originally they were supposed to build a stadium for the New York Jets and then plans fell through. Uh, and so just real estate people and, and um, contractors just built up a bunch of sky. Uh, they built a big honeycomb. Yeah, there's yeah. Yes, exactly. So Hudson Yards now is the neighborhood in New York City known for its giant useless honeycomb. It's just a bunch of stairs that are shaped like a honeycomb. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, that's where that neighborhood is. And it, it opened us up to a new uh, new regular diner that I wasn't used to. I don't think they were used to, like the ones that we would have in the West Village or in Nolita. Mm-hmm. So if uh, you ever see pictures of Legacy or you look at Legacy, um, it's it's very Great Gatsby. It's very Baz Larman like Great Gatsby. It's big. It's bright. Huge ceilings like. So all of a sudden, the action, Bronson, became more, you know, it became more in your face than we wanted it to be. So mm-hmm. Legacy became a collection or a combination of what I did at Pasquale and at Charlie Bird, but with his own touch. So I, I started, I start the nights there with funk, disco, soul, but not not slow like Pasquale. It's it's more a beat. It starts at like, I want to say it starts more like an 85 PPM, maybe even slightly faster. But what I also started to do was I started to incorporate uh, newer artists that play that style of music that because it's come back, you know, yeah. uh, a, a perfect example of that would be like a Meyer Hawthorne or even the way that Anderson Pack treats R&B now, like a lot of his production is throwback to a lot of that 70s like funk style, you know, yeah. uh, Malibu is a perfect example of that. That entire album is funky and, and, it, yeah. and it's super energetic, you know. So uh, Legacy was the place where I combined artists like like Anderson Pac or like the Internet with like a Sharon Jones, you know, or like a Bee Gees or like an average white band, you know, or like a Donald Byrd. Like a lot of those artists that the latter half of the artists that I just mentioned are funk and soul artists that 90s DJ sampled heavy for a lot of that 90s culture. And I love and I loved being a bartender in that space and playing those originals. And when guests finally caught it, they'd be like, bah, like, what is this? Where did this come from? And, you know, having an opportunity to be like, they'd be like, oh, is this new? Be like, nah, man, this is the shit that your favorite rapper sampled 15 years ago. Yeah. You know, that's always the best when you hear a song and it sounds so familiar and you realize it, it was, it's like that shit got incepted, you know, it's inception level shit where it's like, no, that was used for a sample. Yeah. You know, that's always the best when you hear those, you know, something that you brought up in there is kind of like how hip hop evolved out from the 80s and 90s in New York to other parts of the world, the way it was exported out. And this like real nostalgia that so many people feel this affinity people have for like 90s hip hop, you know, and I don't think that's unique to the space of Charlie, but I think that's a style of music, like the music from that time period does it for so many people. Do you think it's just a nostalgia that there are people that have come of age now that, you know, now they remember that music from the 90s and they love it. Like, what's the appeal there? Why do you think 90s hip hop has this staying power? I think that the, I think that the 90s era of hip hop culture specifically is still relevant in hip hop culture today. Well, you know what? Relevant is the wrong word because I'm not paying homage or respect to, you know, the golden age is the 90s, the silver age, you know, in, in like a comics reference would be the 80s or the 70s. You know, the 90s, the 90s doesn't happen without the 80s or the late 70s, you know, like 
you know, Jay-Z and Can't Knock the Hustle doesn't happen without the Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight. You know, it doesn't happen without Big Daddy Kane and Ain't No Half Stepping, you know, like, mm-hmm. so, but to answer your question, I think that the, that specific decade or, or moment in hip hop reigns through because it was the first time that it really broke the ceiling. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it was, it wasn't until the late eighties, nineties when hip hop started to cross over, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's when hip hop became quote unquote cool, you know, uh, it was because of crossover hits, like, you know, walk this way, like Aerosmith and DMC, you know, run DMC or the popification of yes, rap music, you know, yeah. yes, you know, uh, there are hip hop purists that only gravitate to the nineties era of hip hop because it hurts sometimes to people to see the culture that you grew up in, you know, and I'm not talking about New Yorkers. I'm talking about anybody my age, anybody who's, you know, 40 plus, I'm 41. Um, anybody who's my age or older, uh, we were we were advocates uh, to the culture when it wasn't cool, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, we were the kids that were, you know, in the streets buying the albums, buying the tapes, being, being we, we were not painted uh uh, as good people or, or, or a good culture, good human beings, you know, um, uh, across the board, you know, uh, the villainization, uh, the, the how, you know, they try to take away two life crews, First Amendment rights going, you know, that far back. Uh, but it but it, but, you know, those guys, it was that era where we fought back, you know, and I say we uh, as a culture, because, um, you know, everybody in, uh, in that moment picked up was fighting, you know, like, uh, a lot of what was going on in New York and, and, and around the country, um, hip hop became revolutionary music. Uh, and even though it was rooted in New York, everybody, every region had a hero for lack of a better word that was speaking about what was going on in their neighborhoods and, and, and why they were fed up with it. You know, uh, NWA is a perfect representation of that. Not only did they represent their their region uh, uh, style of music and and production, uh, and you could see the difference in influences by who they like who they sampled, but their their gangster rap wasn't gangster. That's just, that was their everyday life, and that's what a lot of people don't realize. So I think the long short short answer for your question is, it was a moment in time where hip hop di- didn't deviate from who it was. And at the same time, allowed for people to join in the fight. Um, it, it became cool. Uh, it became revolutionary for most, and it became cool for American culture. Uh, that was in the '90s. I mean, uh, hip hop culture started to cross over in every facet of American life. I mean, at, by that time, you've got you know everybody in the world is wearing Air Jordans by that time, and there's no way you're not going to tell me that the it must be the shoes campaign with Marvin that Spike Lee directed. That that's not based in hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Uh, hip hop at that point had gotten to a place where it was starting to permeate American culture, whether you know, you know, old school Americans wanted it to or not. And we just and, and it wasn't going away. And mm-hmm. I think 40 years after its inception, it's it's American culture now. I mean, like it's so crazy, dude. Uh, to make to make dinner for my family yesterday, I watched a. YouTube video that was made by Jet Tila on how to make pad thai noodles at home, right? Yeah. And while he's cooking, there's a hip hop beat. Like, it was a straight hip hop beat, dude. It was like 808, yeah. it was a snare drum. 
And I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking about this conversation we're going to have today and and how hip hop has permeated into into hospitality specifically. And I'm like, damn, man, like hip hop has come a long fucking way. Like it, there was yeah. no fucking way that you would have had, you know, KRS-One on a Julia Childs episode 40 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and now you got a, a, a TV chef, like a, a well-known chef like Jet Tila listening to hip hop, a hip hop beat while he's cooking. And the crazy shit is, man, is like, and, and, and I love him for that because he's one of those, he's one of those chefs that like, like a lot of people in our industry, we we're all, we all come from working class families. Like we all, we all, re- we all recognize the word struggle in our own way. And hip hop is rooted in the recognition and celebration of struggle. And when I connect those two dots, man, it, it's, 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 uh, it makes me happy and terrified at the same time mm-hmm. when I look at how, like, uh, what, what's happened with like hip hop and, and how it's being used now in, uh, in hospitality. Yeah. And I think that's really the challenge. It's clear that, you know, within delicious hospitality, you and Robert, there's a true appreciation for not just the music, but the culture behind the music, you know? And I think the challenge is as hip hop has gone through this popification, right? As it's become more ubiquitous and as people have seen the success that like you've had, you know, incorporating black music into your spaces, you know, I think that that appreciation starts to turn into appropriation when the music isn't used with a level of respect for the culture behind it. You know, we can both probably go to any number of restaurants that are using, you know, hip hop, rap, R&B, some kind of music with a black heritage and see that it's not being used with any real thought or care. I see that in Houston. I'm sure you see a lot of it in New York. And I'm sure that, you know, you probably experience it, you know, within your business with the kind of like requests that you get. So I think that's a challenge that we all face is making our spaces, you know, welcoming and inviting is what you're going for reflective of the music that you're playing, all of those small touch points that you were talking about earlier. Are those welcoming things or are those exclusionary things? Um, I think that when you, I think, and I've never owned a space, you know, but I've worked in enough of them. Um, and I've seen things that I have and haven't worked. Um, I think that when I th- I'm going to speak about hip hop specifically, because I, I've been in spaces here in New York where it's work and where it it's 100%, you can tell it's exploitative and not, not really being a fan of, of the music you're playing. Um, so I think that, I think that Charlie bird, Actually, no. I'm not gonna say think. Uh, I'm not. I'm not trying to sound obnoxious, but I've I've spoken with a lot of people um, about this topic recently. Uh, old guests who are now friends, uh, Robert, who's now a friend, Chef Ryan, who's now a friend, um, and I've spoken with black people, white people, brown people, Asian people about this um, because I mean, look at my face, bro. I'm not black, you know. Uh, You're Ecuadorian, right? I'm, I'm, for people that I'm, are listening. Yeah, uh, my parents are both from Ecuador. I'm first generation Ecuadorian American. Um, but I grew up in Harlem. Uh, and like I was saying earlier, you know, you grow up in the city in the era that I did, and hip hop is very important to you. It doesn't, it's part of your life. And I think that um, growing up the way that I did, um, living where I lived, and being who I am, um, 
part of the BL, the BLM movement has been very awakening for me, uh, not only because I've become active in it, but because it's forced me to have serious, serious conversations about passive racism, you know, within my own circle, you know, uh, I have family members who, while they say that they're not racist are like brown people who came to this country in the sixties and seventies, uh, we were, they were taught to have reservations about the black community because that's what was being prevalent on TV and in the radio. You know, you think about the civil rights movement and the way that it was bastardized by the government and the media and brown people who came here who wanted to be good Americans didn't know any better. And so they listened to that bullshit, you know? And when I was little, they tried to put that shit on me, but I was blessed enough to have my own opinion. I've always cared about other human beings, even if I haven't been as proactive as I am now in speaking out, which I am regretful for. Um, and so kind of getting to your point, getting to the point of the question, um, Charlie Bird as a space took a huge chance in being called out for playing hip hop the way that they did, because we played it aggressively. We put it in your face. It was, it's part of our, it was part of our culture. You know, mm -hmm. uh, when I talked to Robert about, about the experience there, we laugh because Pete, what Charlie Bird is most known for when we look back are the music and the Zalto glasses, the wine glasses. <laughs> um, but, you know, we had Lila Warko boombox art on the walls. And Lila Warko, that whole book was homage, paying homage to hip hop culture. Lila Warko is a phenomenal artist. Um, in, the, in our menus, our menus, the paper that we used for the menus were in the same pattern of colors as the old concert uh stock that used to be used in like webster hall and other venues here in new york it was the like that hippie color the green the yellow the red the blue and we put our the font that we used on it was very like throwback to those album covers to those eight late 70s early 80s album covers and then what was cool was when you opened up the, the menus they were paper so a lot of people started taking them home uh when you opened them up they were pictures that we um that we were able to use with the permission of uh, legendary photographer Ricky Powell. Uh, Ricky Powell, for those who don't know in hip hop culture, is um, uh, uh, lovingly known as the fourth Beastie Boy uh, because, oh, really? yeah, he was there. He was a roadie, basically a photographer that went on the road with the boys, and a lot there are a lot of legendary uh, photos of New York culture and artists and rappers from the 80s and 90s that uh that ricky powell is responsible for so shout out to ricky um but those details before i even took over the music program those details to me as a hip-hop fan made me feel good about how the owners felt about the space you know mm -hmm. and i think that our music program got to where it was because i fucking love hip-hop and when they told me that i could do what i wanted to with the music i did what i felt was right with the culture you know, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I've I, I've been fortunate enough, uh, brother, to, you know, be friends now with people who run music labels. And when I talk to them about this, I was talking to one of them the other day uh, about this whole movement with music and hospitality. And she was telling me she's like, Charlie, she says, I went there because of how the music program you put together made me feel as a music as a music as a music uh, professional. She said as a Latina. She's like, I loved that when the culture was represented in the space, it felt real. She said, mm -hmm. she said, I know that Lior went there because it felt real. 
And Steve mm-hmm. Stout went there because it felt real. So for people who you know work tirelessly to give hip-hop the proper respect it deserves, for those people to tell me, yo, you're doing our culture justice, that always made me feel good. And I think back and I think that the success of what we did with our music program is because of that. Because as a hip-hop fan, you know, like hip-hop fans, even the most casual one, we, we, we know what fake is. We know what bullshit is. You know, our bullshit meters are a little bit more in tune than most people because that's part of the hustle is being able to know when you're being hustled. It's that authenticity. Exactly. You know? And we have that. Well, we had that when I was there. Like I keep, like I'll always say, we were not the first, but we were the first to put it in your face and say, this is who we are. Whether you yeah. like us or not, I can tell you with 100% confidence, Robert Bohr and Chef Ryan, they never gave a fuck about restaurant reviews and shit like that, man. They wanted spaces that their guests were going to love, that they were proud of, and that people could relate to. And we did that. We did that when it came to all of those spaces, you know? And a big mm-hmm. part of that was the music program. And so a lot of these places, and I like, dude, I started to go, you know, when I would go out to restaurants a year after me taking over the music program here in the city. Um, I remember at the time I had a, I, the girl, the lady I was eating at the time, it was our first dinner with her parents. So we went to a restaurant that was catching a lot of fame and, um, in, in the city. And, you know, um, the, the experience as a whole was pretty shitty, but what I found was really funny was that because of the food or because of the, the parents, I mean, no, where no, we the, had the, the, the would have been in-laws were amazing. Uh, shout out to them. Uh, but shout out would be in-laws. Yeah. The, the could have the, the been in-laws were amazing. Uh, but, um, no, it was the space, man, the food, the way that they played with the music, they had no, no thought to it. And progressively, um, as I would eventually open up audio culture and start to field emails and phone calls or meetings about, Hey man, you're the guy that does the Charlie bird music, right? Like, um, I want you to put music together for me. How much is that going to cost? And so I would start to explain to them that a music curator, someone who does what I do, is the equivalent of having a DJ in your space without the turntables. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so you're 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 paying me to build a culture, hence the name audio culture. You're paying me to build a culture within your space. You got to pay me like a DJ. Um, mm-hmm. And once the once the money conversation started. Oh, really? Well, you know, and um, again, going back to the, you know, uh, earlier part of this interview, why? Why do I have to not get paid what I know I deserve to put together a program that you're going to benefit off of? Because nowadays, when music is great at a space, they people talk about it. People go back mm-hmm. for it. Oh man, have you been to this place? Oh, we gotta go, man. Their martinis are great. You know, they've got this amazing steak tartare. But yo, they play this crazy homage to like uh, '70s New York house, and they're you know what I mean. And there are yeah. places that specialize in different. At a time when restaurant competition has never been higher, anything you can do to stand out and like, if the music is good enough, it will bring people back. Oh, it's like you said, you know those record producers, those people that worked at the labels, they went because of the music, you know, and it can be any number of things. But if you really want a place to stand out for something, doesn't matter what that something is, it could be, you know, menu design, it could be the art on the wall, it could be the music. But 
you need to demonstrate that you actually truly give a shit about that thing. You know, it's in the details, you know, 1000% man. And it's, it's so crazy that you just said that because, um, I wanted to, I had this saved, um, for when we got to this part of the conversation, because I wanted to talk about it. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy how much music has come in being relevant, like having relevancy and being important in a space that people spend money. Um, because for the longest time, a lot of people didn't think about it or were very lazy about their approach to it. You know, exhibit A would be that owner in that Austri Austrian space playing Brazilian jazz, right? Mm -hmm. So recently I came across an article uh, from this uh, platform called Open Ear Music. And I guess they have a website and I don't know if they have social media, but they put out an article and the name of the topic of the or the the title of the article is Elevating Music, How Customer Experience Will Be Key to hospitality and retail business survival in a post-lockdown world, okay? Um, and it's written by Brian D'Souza. It was released on June 3rd of this year. Um, mm -hmm. I thought it was a good article. Um, I thought a lot of the points that he wrote about why music is important, why it's going to be more important, how people are even going to listen to it that much more when we talk about social distancing and limited capacity, um, you know, uh, not just in restaurants, but, you know, bars, uh, wine stores, department stores, anything, any space that people are going to be, you know, occupying, music is going to take a much bigger role. I think that there has to be an, an, uh, an amount of responsibility and recognition attached to the use of that culture. Um, hip hop culture uh, is rooted in black culture. Black culture is rooted in black people. And if all you've done in, in this moment in history is post a black square, or, you know, donate money. Um, because listen, I'm sorry, I know that donating money is noble, but it's also easy. It's also easy because it's done in, in discretion. It, it can be done anonymously. It, yeah. It's more relevant and more important to the, to the world right now in this moment in history for you to have those uncomfortable conversations uh, as a restaurateur with your investors, with your partners, with your family, with your general managers. Anyone who is in your circle of decision makers that doesn't, that can't understand that this is a moment and a movement about human rights and basic human decency, those people don't deserve the sweat that you put into your work. And to expand on that, if you're going to use hip hop culture, if you're going to use black culture in any, in any way, shape or form in your dining room, you have to have, you have to be responsible with it and you have to stand up for the people that create it and i'm not talking about the artists because the artists make their money i'm talking about the black and brown people who are going to work there because you're representing their culture the black and brown people who are going to go there because you're representing their culture as a restaurateur as an owner as a as a restaurant group you have a responsibility to those people hell yeah those people pay your bills and if you don't see that then you do not deserve to profit from hip hop music or hip hop culture. Point blank, period. Here in New York City, I can say with a hundred percent confidence that I've walked into I've walked into the Nomad Bar and they've played hip hop. I've mm -hmm. walked into uh walking into the grill, which does not play hip hop, but do you know what they do play? They play Nina Simone. They play Frank Sinatra. And, I, and here's a little something for all of you casual music fans all of the success that frank sinatra had is rooted 
in the composure and arrangement of Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones was the arranger and composer of a lot of Frank Sinatra's most memorable, most iconic music. So even when you're listening to Frank, you're listening to black music. And that is a that is important to me. Um, because you know, this article that we just talked that I just brought up, that's gonna snowball because there are a lot of people that are gonna start to feel that way. Music mm-hmm. is gonna become something in in, in 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 hospitality culture that wasn't thought about the way that it was before. But I'm gonna tell you what, even before I was doing it, Chef Mark Samuelson was doing it at the Red Rooster. Before we mm-hmm. were doing it in the West Village in New York City, they were doing it in Harlem. Before before I let you go, what else do you want to let people know? Either another artist you want to turn people on to or something else to consider when it comes to thinking about music in a space. Stop paying algorithms. Stop paying these old white men at the, you know, who are building these companies that, you know, incorporate a couple of computer nerds to generate this random list of 150 of the most popular songs of that era of that genre. And you pay $40 a month to, to have that played in your dining room. That shit's disrespectful. It's disrespectful to your staff. It's disrespectful to your patrons. It's disrespectful to the culture. Like in what fucking restaurant that's going to be successful, are you going to pay somebody to put a vending machine in and just put a bunch of random glasses of wine and then you just hit shuffle and whatever comes out, that's what your patron uh, consumes. What kind of bullshit is that? Hell yeah. One of the really cool things about, another one of the really cool things about working in Charlie Bird, the space, and then working with Robert and Chef uh, in the time and the capacity that I did um, was that uh, traditionally in hospitality, a lot of owners and restaurateurs take credit uh, away from the bartender that made the cocktail that made the name for that space or from the line cook or the sous chef that made the recipe, that made the plate, that made the name for that space. Um, Humbly, Charlie Bird is known, will always be known for the music program. And they never took credit away from me. They never took it away. Um, And I was able to evolve as a professional in hospitality and as a business owner because of their support. That's great. So you can be found on Spotify at Audio Culture LLC. Yeah. And it's a thumbnail of Tribe Called Quest. That's your that's your photo. And there's some great playlists on here, including Pasquale Jones Lunch 2019. We've got Charlie Bird Dinner 2019. But then we also have one that is High School Musical 1, 2, and 3 soundtrack. I want to know... What that's doing in there? I don't know, man. That's uh, that's- what, what's what's going on there? <laughs> I'm gonna have to look at that. I haven't been on there in a while. I, I do have family members that share my account. You know, like I think I think you got some family member that's been blasting that Zac Efron. But by I that, think but by that same token, man, like High School Musical, I'm not ashamed to say, like I, I love musicals. I thought it was great. Like I I wouldn't listen to the soundtrack on a regular basis, but I wouldn't be surprised if upon a little bit deeper digging there's something on there that I might've used for a playlist somewhere uh, because I'm crazy like that, man. So like um, uh, the pitch perfect series, like I stay in Anna Kendrick, um, but I also love the way that they perform. And there's a song that they perform on pitch perfect three that is super poppy, super dancey. And I used it because it's really high energy. It's super fun. I forgot what I used it for. I think it was for like a wedding playlist that I used it for yeah. a brand or something. 
and I got great fucking feedback back. So it's like, Hell yeah. you know, the the long short of it is I don't remember putting that on 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 a on a pedestal like that, but I at the same time wouldn't doubt if somehow I used it somewhere at some point. All good. All right. Uh, before we go, give people three new artists that they should be listening to, or three albums, either three artists or three albums that you're really digging right now outside of logic. Cause we already talked about him. Okay. Give me three others. Um, so, you know, uh, I'd say over the last two years, um, I've been late, I'm late to the party. I don't, uh, but Freddie Gibbs, uh, bandanas album last year, uh, Alfredo this year. Yeah. Fantastic. Alfredo is great, but I've been, I've been on a constant repeat of bandana. Um, um, the Internet's last album I still have on constant repeat. Hive Mind, shout out that record. Very, very good. Hive Mind was like, it's perfect from beginning to end. Uh, I'm a little bit more subjective in listening to it because they were the last live show that I got to see before we went into quarantine. And then new artists. What other new artists have I been listening to a lot? Or new, you, know, you-, what, you know, a new album, a new um. A new album that I've been listening to too. He's not a new artist, but that new that new Gambino man, that new Gambino is is, is yeah. insane. Yeah, it's really really good. Yeah, that came out right at the start of quarantine. So I don't know if you've been listening to it much, but um, Burner Boy is someone who I have been totally vibing on. He released African Giant, um, I think it was last year, last summer, and then he just dropped his newest project. So that's my artist for you to check out if you haven't listened to Burna Boy. He's done a couple collabs on his last album, African Giant. He had a song with Future and another song with YG. And he's steeped in like Nigerian music. His grandfather, I think, was a manager for Fela Kuti. And he's just been making some like insanely good music that I've been loving. So so Burna Boy's on my list. That's what I'm gonna leave you with. For listening to if you haven't heard of him okay word yeah i'm gonna hell yeah man well thank you so much for the time thanks for chatting dude thanks um, for having me man it was an awesome conversation thank you big thanks to charlie for taking the time to chat his company audio culture llc is on instagram and you can find his personal page on instagram at i am audio culture that's i as in e-y-e the letter m audio culture and as always you can subscribe to buy the glass on spotify apple Podcasts, google play or wherever you source your audio content thanks for listening and we'll see you next week with another episode of buy the glass